Well, it's so good to see you this morning, and uh, welcome to Equipping Hour. This is kind of exciting and uh, a little bit intimidating, because I know that you made the massive sacrifice of getting here an hour earlier uh, to dive into this study, and so um, I'm feeling the uh, pressure to make it well worth your time. And so uh, I'm looking forward to this, this discussion and this study, and I'm looking forward to the time with you. And um, I'll introduce that in just a moment, but let me just begin with a word of prayer. Let's just uh, ask the Lord to bless the equipping hour and bless our time together as we uh, talk about these things from God's word. In your name, let's just let's pray together. Bow with me. Father, thank you so much for your clear speech. Thank you that you have given us such clear utterance in your word, a, a, a word that we can trust, a word that we can understand, truth that we can know, truth we can believe, truth we can obey. Thank you for the grace of your spirit to quicken our hearts, to convict us when we don't, and to enliven our otherwise dead souls to respond with joy and submission, to receive your word and not just think about it, but to receive it and welcome it as your very word. And so as we, as we think, Lord, about a constant threat that we face, that mankind has faced ever since the fall of questioning your word and questioning its meaning, I do pray that as a result of, the, of our time in, in this equipping hour, or even over the next several weeks, I pray that it would accomplish a greater confidence. I pray that everyone who considers these things would be benefited by a greater confidence in your ability to speak, as well as a greater confidence in in our ability to understand what you mean by what you say. And if, that's, if you answer that prayer, and we know you will, we know that's in line with your character, so we're praying this with confidence, knowing that you're going to answer it, um, and we know then that that will be well worth our time in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to ask you a question this morning. I want to ask you if you think that God's word is clear. Do you believe God's word is clear? That's really a question that kind of gets at, does God know how to speak? Does God know how to communicate? Does he know how to talk? Uh, God's word would seem to indicate, yes, he does. Psalm 119, verse 130. This is one of my favorite verses on the clarity of scripture. The psalmist writes this, the unfolding of your words gives light it gives understanding to the simple. And so the psalmist is explaining that when God's word is unfolded, it's like a headlight on the front of your car driving down an otherwise dark highway. You might not be able to see down this dark highway, but suddenly the headlights of your car show you what's in front of you and clarify where the lines are and where the traffic is, where the hazards are. And the psalmist is saying the unfolding of God's word gives light. That's the only place where mankind can find clarity, the light of God's word. And every one of you who, are, who love the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you know how much clarity you get from God's word. But that clarity is under attack, it's under assault. I want you to open with me to Genesis chapter 3. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. 
The uh, title for these studies is we kind of just do some um, several weeks of equipping hour. We're gonna we're gonna be staying with this subject for uh, a little bit of time. Um, the title was given to me. Um, Smed and Omri assigned it to me, and I rejoiced in the title. And now Smed, Smed's like, Omri's like, I don't know about that. I'm not taking credit or blame for this. No, he can take all the, all, the, all the credit. I'll take all the blame. But I do love the title. Um, the title really we want to look at, and this is the question we want to answer is, did God really say? Now, why is that a good title? Because in the Bible, we find out that that is probably the most satanic assault on God's ability to speak that we could ever imagine. Does God know how to speak? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings. And then in verse 8, what ensues is the following encounter with God immediately after they bought the lie that Satan introduced to them about God's inability to speak. Did God really say? Now why did I say this is Satan? We need to make a few observations here. So go back to verse 1. A few observations about this text. Well, one of the most uh, funny observations about this text is the shock and awe that uh, the serpent is talking. This isn't just any old snake. And what's maybe equally, equally shocking and surprising is that Eve just responds to the snake like it's just appropriate that they're even having a conversation. But we do understand from the rest of Scripture and even from the curse that immediately follows in chapter 3, this serpent is not just any old snake. This serpent is indeed Satan whose influence is going to be in hostile opposition to all the influences of the seed that's going to come from Eve. We learn from numbers that the seed to come is opposed to Satan's influence and Balaam is trying to oppose the people of God and he can't because God won't let him curse the people of God and so he says... Seed is going to come from Jacob. He's going to have dominion, and he's going to crush the head of Moab. And we know that this is the serpent from the New Testament when Paul says that the Lord will soon crush Satan under your feet. And we know it's Satan from 2 Corinthians 11 because Paul was seeing satanic influence on the church. He was confusing the Corinthian church doctrinally. 
And he says, don't be deceived like Eve who was deceived by the serpent. Because now inside the church there are angels of Satan disguised as angels of light. We know it's Satan because John writes in the book of Revelation, both in chapter 12 and in chapter 20, that the serpent is the snake of old, Satan the deceiver. And so here we are in chapter 3, and we notice that we've got this snake who is going to have profound influence on all who oppose the seed promise, and he is now speaking to Eve, but what's an observation that is often missed in chapter 3 is, interestingly enough, this, we, we've, we've, we've just kind of jumped out of a paratrooper plane and we've landed in a context where God has already spoken to Eve. In fact, this doesn't even really have to be Satan's tactic if he's not trying to deceive people who haven't already heard God's word. But right now in Genesis chapter 3, he's dealing with an individual that he wants to deceive, but this person has already heard something from God. God has already spoken to Adam and Eve. He's already spoken to them, and he's told them about his will for them to conduct themselves in the garden. And so now he starts to cast question on what God has already said. So this question, did God really say, or as the NAS translates it, indeed has God said? That is a satanic question for people who have access to God's word. It's a satanic question for people who have a Bible, who have a Bible translated into their own language, who have heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have access to the written revelation of God in the scripture. This is the satanic question. This is the, the most satanic question that we could possibly ask after receiving a knowledge of what God said. Satan's forked tongue introduces the greatest danger mankind has ever faced. It's not global warming, and um, it's not nuclear holocaust. It's not who's going to execute function over this nation for the next four years. The greatest danger mankind has ever faced is the pride of standing over God's word. Of asking this question, did God really say that? You know, I don't, I doubt that's really what God meant. Now, real quick, I want to just pause on Genesis 3 for a second, and I want to encourage you. This is, there, there is a tone to this question that's, it's not the tone that you ask when you're asking of the heart of faith and a heart of humility, when you come to a passage and you're, you're kind of like scratching your head, you're saying, that's, that's a challenging text. What does God mean when he says this? And when you go in your heart to the Lord and you say, Lord, what do you mean by what you're saying here? That is not satanic. That's a humility that says, Lord, I need understanding. The unfolding of your word brings light I want to go to you and to your word to have more light and to have more clarity. That's appropriate. This is a different question. This is a question that looks at what God says and from a position of indifference 
position of skepticism, a position of scrutiny, a hesitation that says, I don't know if I want to obey that. That's going to cost me too much. It comes up with a skeptical question, namely, did God really say that? Notice the question then turns into assertion. Once he starts to entice Eve, he wants to plant seeds of doubt about the character of God. He wants to plant seeds of doubt about either his language ability or his goodness in giving them these restrictions. And it is interesting that when you compare what God says in Genesis 2 with what Eve answers in chapter 3, verse 3, she does add, God did say you shall not eat of it, or you will surely die, but she adds, and don't even touch it. And at that point, Satan inserts, asserts, you shall not surely die. And so it starts in verse 2, say, um, it starts in verse 1, Satan asks the question, and then it becomes absolute denial and rejection of God's word in verse 4. In the church today, there's too much superficial familiarity with God's word for Satan to be successful with just plying on the ignorance of man. That won't work in, the, in American evangelicalism. That won't work in a typical Protestant Reformed church. And so, Satan's ploy today is hermeneutics. What does that mean? Well, hermeneutics is just a fancy word for describing the science of interpretation. When you read the Bible, how do you come to a conclusion about what it means? What did God mean when he said that? So when you read and you, and you, you look at the scriptures and you come away with a conclusion of the sense of, this is what God's asking me to do, you're interpreting what he says. You're, you're paying attention to it, you're looking at it, you're reading it. And this is, by far and away, Satan's greatest ploy today is to start to insert questions of doubt about meaning. That's what he did with Eve, because Eve knew God's word. And that's what he's doing with the church today, particularly where the church knows or has access to God's word. So this, what I want to do over the next several weeks is I want to work through a biblical answer of how you can really know that, yes, God speaks clearly, and yes, we can understand him by what he says. And we're going we're gonna to get to that answer. But this morning what I want to do is I just want to spend the, our, the rest of our time I want to spend the rest of our time looking at some of the popular ways that Satan has really had an inroads into the church, that these are going to be attacks on God's ability to speak, attacks on God's speech. And so you see an example straight here, right out of Genesis 3, there, there, he is attacking God's speak, speech. There's, there's several ways that in our current day and age, God's ability to speak is really being attacked. And there's some plausible attacks uh, that I, I quite often hear people not having an answer for, or even worse, I hear so-called Christian experts actually promoting these attacks and actually causing God's people to doubt God's ability to speak clearly. And so I, I, I kind of boiled it down to three. I mean, there's, there's quite a few we could talk about. But I think these three cover the majority um, of types of attacks on God's word. So let me just give them to you one at a time. And I'll give you, a, I'll give you the attack, and then I'm going to give you kind of a, a quick example of how the Bible 
deals with these attacks. Number one, on your PowerPoint there behind me, you should be able to see um, the plausible attacks on God's speech. The first one is personal circumstance prevents a proper reading. You think, well, what does that mean? Who, who would ever say that? So let me play out for you an example. Let's say you're at work and say you've got a coworker who you've been sharing the gospel with. And you've been talking to this friend about the gospel and you've been, you've been highlighting some, maybe some particular passages that would explain, yeah, you know, uh, friend, you, you, what's going to happen to you when you die? And they come up with some crazy answer. Maybe you, maybe you talk to them about Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed for men to die once and after this to receive judgment. And then you start talking about, how, how's it going to go when you stand before the Lord in judgment? Oh, I'm a pretty good person. And okay, then you... You quote James 2.10, you're guilty at one point, you're guilty of all. And you've got, you know, passages might be coming up, and you might be starting just praying, Lord, I pray that these verses would be a foundation for my, my coworker here to understand the gospel and, and to see their need for Christ. And you start this conversation, and let's say you get about a few months into that conversation, as I have, and a few months in, that person turns to you and just says, you know, you keep saying this is what God says. It's not what God says. Well, sure it is. I'm just, it's, from, it's in the Bible. And they say, no, 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 no. No, 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 that's, you're, not, you're not giving me the, you're not just giving me the Bible. Don't you realize when you're trying to, you're trying to push your Christianity on me, all you're doing is you're saying you're reading the Bible, but then you're giving it to me and it's interpreted by you. And you can't distance yourself from who you are. Don't you realize, Christian, you've got a personal background, you've got presuppositions, you've got traditions, you've got things that you hold dear, you've got ways of reading, things that you think are valuable, and that's just part of who you are. And you can't separate yourself from that. So you've never actually just said, you've never given me, this is what the Bible says, this is what God says. It's always interpreted through your personal experience. Sounds like a devastating, devastating critique, doesn't it? Here's one example. I have a quote for you. One scholar said it this way. The naively realistic view of that stage, the reader simply reading the text, can itself be made, um, uh, can be made to collapse. All I am really aware of in the presence of this text is my own sense data. Perhaps you've ever had, you've had that conversation where somebody says to you, well, you grew up in the church, and that's what you've always believed. Or, you interpret the Bible this way, because that's what your church... Oh, you go, oh, you go, to, you go to Grace Bible Church in Tempe? <laughs> they teach you how to read the Bible that way, don't they? You've just been given a way of reading the Bible that's just part of your context. And you see how satanic that assault really is? But you also see how healthy that question really is, because the question does become, am I just reading the Bible the, in, the, in the wrong way? Or am I reading the Bible the way God would have me read the Bible? And so that's really where the question comes, is am I reading the Bible the way God would have me read the Bible? So what do you say? At that point, you're at the water cooler. This coworker, three months into this conversation, and they say to you, yeah, you keep telling me all this Bible stuff, and you keep saying God says, but you've never, all you're really doing is giving me your interpretation of what God says. 
Oh, man, the Bible doesn't have an answer. What do, you, what do you say to that? No, the Bible does have an answer. The Bible has a lot of answers. Let me just give you one. That's all we have time for this morning. Look at Matthew chapter 19. There's so many places we could go, and the reason why is because over and over and over again, the scriptures presuppose that the, the Bible itself is clear enough to overcome my own subjective experience. So just as you're turning to Matthew 19, let me give you my own subjective experience. I'm a middle-aged, white, male, grew up in Kansas, redneck, and, and you even know my dad. So you, know, you, have all, you have two generations of all my personal tradition, my own personal situatedness that gets read into the scripture every time I read the scripture. Is that bound to prevent me from hearing God? See, that's what the world presupposes. The world believes that you can't get past yourself and actually hear God speak. The Bible does not share that conviction. The Bible doesn't have that conviction. The Bible actually destroys that as error. That's a lie. The fact that God would speak and it cannot overcome my own personal situation is a lie against God's ability to speak. Here's just one example. Matthew 19. Jesus is in the middle of a, a debate. He's being assaulted and he's being t tested and interrogated. And this is one of the about ten times where Jesus is recorded as saying, have you not read? Have you not read? But I want to give you a little bit of the context here. This is a chapter about divorce. Divorce has a long and storied uh, history of debate. In Jesus' day and age, um, there was an oral tradition that was going back and forth of argument between some of the formidable um, rabbis about how to interpret Deuteronomy 24, one of the notable passages about divorce given to the Jews by Moses. In Jesus' day and age, there wasn't a written record of this debate. It was oral tradition at this point. About 200 years after Jesus, it was written down in the Mishnah. Let me read to you a passage from the Mishnah. In case you haven't done your um, devotions recently in tractate named Gitim, I'll read it for you, just in case this isn't where you weren't this morning, if you weren't, haven't read this before. In Gitim chapter 9, verse 10, uh, it says... The house of Shammai say, a man should divorce his wife only because he has found grounds for it in unchastity, since, as, since it is said, because he has found in her indecency in anything, Deuteronomy 24.1. And the house of Hillel say, even if she spoiled his dish, since it is said, because he has found indecency in anything in her, Rabbi Akiva says, even if he found someone else prettier than she, since it is said, and it shall be if she finds no favor in his eyes. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Now this is most interesting. Hillel and Shammai would have predated, they were contemporaries of Jesus, both would have died before the record of the account in Matthew 19. But they would have overlapped in Jesus' life and then died during Jesus' lifetime. Rabbi Akiva came later. But it's interesting, you've got the conservative side, Shammai, saying that really it's only for unchastity, and then you've got the more liberal side of Hillel saying, man, even if she fouls up dinner, she makes a dish that he doesn't like, oh, I, I can't, 
you made that horrible dish that your mom always made? This marriage is over. Okay, that's the interpretation there for Hillel says, check, indecency. And then Rabbi Akiva comes along and says, oh, well, it's talking about finding indecency in her, so you find somebody else prettier. And then, voila, you have grounds for divorce based upon Deuteronomy 24.1. All three interpretations are being pinned on one passage, Deuteronomy 24.1. To make matters worse, this is being brought to Jesus as a test. Verse 19, chapter 19, verse 1. He finished these words. He departed from Galilee. Uh, and so then all these crowds are following him. Verse 3. Some Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they are testing him. Asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that all who created, uh, I'm sorry, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. For he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, let's stop right there for a second. This test comes to Jesus, and to make matters worse than the fact that they have multiple interpretive traditions, it's kind of like, choose your own adventure. You can just pick the template or the overlay and put it over the top of Deuteronomy 24 and just kind of pick your interpretation. You've got three options right there in the Mishnah. And to make matters worse than the three options, each of those rabbis has its own, his own personal situatedness. Use the fancy term. Every single one of those rabbis was born and had parents. His parents were either married or divorced or never married. That's really your only options. And so they would have They've been trained in, in the school of interpretation. They would have access to multiple interpretations. They have their own personal situation. And they have something to lose if they say the wrong thing or come to the wrong conclusions as a leader in the nation of Israel. I mean, talk about personal circumstance. All of that has bearing on this discussion. And what does Jesus do? Throw up his hands and say, oh, too much is against us. We can never find out what God meant. What's so profound about his response is that he simply answers, have you not read? Well, you know what's so clarifying about that answer? Jesus is operating on the principle that the simple and straightforward reading of God's word is clear enough and powerful enough to overcome personal hostility, personal indifference, or preconceived notions that are wrong about the scriptures. Jesus' presupposition is the simple reading of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 gives you enough clarity to understand Deuteronomy 24 to transcend your own history, your own family, your own school of interpretation, and your own bad misreading of the scriptures. Wow. Jesus is revealing a very high view of his Father's ability to speak. Brothers and sisters, I never get tired of bragging in my God's ability to speak. He knows how to speak, and he speaks clearly. And I love it so. 
That's Jesus' presupposition. And today, you keep hearing people say, oh, no, you can't, you can't escape who you are. You can't escape who you are. That's why we've got to pool our differing backgrounds so that hopefully we can arrive at objectivity. Well, your limited perspective and my limited perspective and all of our sins and baggage and traditions and upbringing, you, you put all that mess together and that's going to make it better? No. No, instead, the scriptures have a, a power and a clarity that are able to overcome our presuppositions. And so this first critique, it happens all the time. And you probably heard the term postmodernism. That's the idea of where we're at after the Enlightenment, you know, we've outgrown the idea that you can be scientific and rational. And we've outgrown the idea that our emotions are infallible. So we're left with existentialism. All you can ever know is kind of your own experience. So you can know what you experience with the word, but you can never know what God objectively says. That's probably the most common argument, some form of that or another. And it might be as simple as, one guy told me, while, we were, while I, was, I was in college and we were, I was living in, doing a, an internship at a church plant in a Mormon town in Utah and we were bolting together this big massive water slide at this water park and we're on this man lift together and he's sitting there, we're, we're caulking and bolting this, this water slide and he just said, John all you're telling me is your own interpretation that's all you're telling me very straightforward, very simple response and that and every other form of this attack are answered by the scriptures. That could be true, my friend. I could be imposing my personal circumstance on the scriptures. But if I'm doing that, they're powerful enough and they're clear enough for you to show me where I'm getting the scriptures wrong. So let's open up the scriptures and let's see where I'm wrong. That's the biblical answer. Now, let's look at another plausible attack. Number two. Number two. Differing interpretations disprove the Scripture's clarity. Differing interpretations disprove the Scripture's clarity. Now, this is an interesting one. Have you ever heard this before? The, 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 the common accusation would go like this. If the Bible is so clear then why do people disagree? If the Bible's so clear, then why are there different opinions about theology and church and how you do church and different views of soteriology? And why are there arguments about who Christ is and how he saves? And... You guys ever heard that? This happens all the time. And there's a, there's a, a real strong desire to agree. And, it, and this desire to agree isn't always wrong. I mean, obviously, unity is a virtue. Every true Christian has true unity with Christ and with their fellow man who also have unity with God. That's called vertical fellowship and horizontal fellowship. And so not all desires for unity are wrong, but there's, there's a real temptation here to create unity by saying we need to have the same answers. And the fact that not everybody's saying the same thing about the Bible is making me really nervous. Obviously, God's not speaking clearly if we have different answers, if we have different Conclusions, if we come to different interpretations. And this is, you know, some of you who had a, who've grown up in, in Roman Catholicism or you've been around the, the Roman Catholic Church, you understand that's what's so attractive for so many about the Roman Catholic Church is the uh, initial allure of, and the illusion of having the same answers. I mean, 
How attractive. We've got one guy in Rome who tells us the answer key. He tells us what every interpretation is supposed to end up being. And at least since Vatican I in 1869 to 70, at least since then, it's infallible. Yikes. One guy with the infallible answer key to every doctrinal conclusion, which apparently this week includes homosexuality. Some have tried to avoid the abuse of allowing one person to hold all interpretive authority, and so they kind of spread it out and share the wealth, share the liability, and that's supposed to protect from the abuse of one man holding that much power. And this is kind of what happens in the Roman Catholic Church with the magisterium. That would be councils and having what the church has always said by way of councils and, and, and creeds, and, and that's called the magisterium. And it's interesting that um, when it comes time for people to say, hey, you know what, we can actually get... We can actually make sure that when, when Satan comes along and says, did God really say, we can have an answer key. Well, who, who's the one who has that key? I mean, if it's not public and accessible in God's written, real word, where do we get the authority to say, oh, but there's an answer key? Well, the magisterium would say, it goes back to oral tradition. See, Jesus told the apostles all sorts of things that he didn't write down, so the scriptures aren't enough, but the oral tradition is. And he gave it to the apostles, and they passed it down through the popes and creeds. And so those men who were at the top of the church have access to that secret knowledge that was spoken by Jesus, but never written by the apostles. That's the same thing that the rabbis said about why the rabbis had the interpretive key of the Old Testament, because they went back to Moses on top of Sinai, and God said things to Moses, apparently, that weren't recorded in the scriptures, and only Moses knew them, and he talked about them with Aaron and the fellow Levites, and so then the the, the rabbinical tradition is we've got the answer key of what was told to Moses secretly that you don't have, and so we'll tell you what it means. And so you've got a pope or a magisterium or a rabbinical circle. Interestingly enough, you might think, well, I don't know, I've never, I've never been in those circles, I've never been in those backgrounds. Well, some of you maybe have grown up in, the, in more of a Protestant church. And you know what's interesting is in the Protestant church, I've probably read more Protestants than, than any other uh, people who say, I have the key to interpretation. And the key to interpretation, where we're going to find unity, how often do I hear people say that the key to interpretation is something outside the scriptures? Every time I hear somebody say that they've got the key, it's something like, for example, Second Temple Judaism, or the Church Fathers, the first 400 years of the Church, or medieval scholastic scholars, or the reformers, or enlightenment philosophers. And the list goes on and on and on. And you know what's common to all of those interpretive keys? You know what I find just most remarkable? Every single time it's promoted by somebody who is supposed to be an expert in that area. It's a, it's a fulfillment of what Paul told Timothy, isn't it? There are men who want to be perceived as experts in the law, and they're making confident assertions about things that they do not understand. And so, you become an expert in one little area of knowledge. For me, it's carpet squares. Right here, look at these carpet squares. I know how to install them. I know everything about the product. Guess what? You really want to understand scripture? You got to know carpet squares. I'm your guy. Come to me, and I'll give you all the answers. 
It always works that way. It's always wherever that person's supposed to be an expert, and that becomes the key to in, in making sure that we can understand God correctly. Because poor God didn't give us that special knowledge. And so he lacks the ability to communicate clearly until we have this expert come along who can just hand us the answers. And some people despairing of all these experts just say, you know what, it's got to be democratic. It's just what the church has always believed everywhere. I remember, the, I remember reading the church father who said that. that what we need to behold, what, what must be upheld as the meaning of scripture is what, all, what people, Christians have always believed everywhere. What all Christians in every location have always believed about the scriptures. Um, can you show me one doctrine in the Bible that's never been argued about? What's, can name one doctrine that that's everyone always has always agreed on? Nothing. And so, I understand the dilemma here. Differing interpretations disprove Scripture's clarity. I understand the, the burden of it. But in the, in the concern to provide unity, in the concern to defend God's ability to speak, we so readily run somewhere else besides God and His Word. And wherever we run at that point, that becomes the true authority. Let me give you one quick quote here before I answer this from a biblical perspective. A uh, really helpful quote from Herman Bavinck. Herman Bavinck was a, uh, a great theologian. He ministered in a, um, right there in the crux of the Protestant and, and Catholic um, uh, convergence there in the Netherlands in the 1800s. And he says this, Tradition became a force alongside of, and not long afterwards, superior to, Scripture. Finally, when tradition even received its own infallible organ in the person of the Pope, it also, in fact, took the place of the Word of God, for the interpretive authority is invariably the supreme and true authority. That's so true. When it comes to God's Word, if you read God's Word and a voice comes into your head, did God really say this? And the answer to knowing what God actually said, if the answer key to knowing what God said came from outside of the Scripture then whatever that answer key is just became the ultimate authority. It became more authoritative than Scripture. And so, inevitably, the answer must come from the Scripture. And that's what we're going to be doing for many, many weeks. But specifically with regard to this attack, what do we say? Differing inter interpretations disprove the Scripture's clarity. It's not true. Not true. Let me say it this way. Before we as man, before mankind, before the readers of Scripture, before we assume that differing interpretations or differing opinions about the Scripture, before we believe that that has any reflection on God's ability to speak, the prior question, the more important question is, do the Scriptures themselves clearly anticipate differing opinions about themselves? How about that for a question? That's a great question to ask you. When you have a friend who truly does not believe God's word, and you're seeing their unbelief come out in this form and say, yeah, well, if it's as clear as you say it is, how come you all don't get along? There's all sorts of kinds of Christians, and you guys can't agree about anything. Where you need to go is just, 
you know, that's a, that's a great question, but that's, that's actually no assault on Scripture if the Scriptures expect that there's going to be differing opinions about them. What ends up happening is, if you take the time to show them some of the passages that I'm going to show you, every instance of disagreement over the Scriptures can actually prove the clarity of the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures clearly reveal that people will not agree about the Bible. So this is a really big answer, but I'm just going to boil it down into three points. This is probably about all we'll have time for this morning. Three biblical answers about this attack. What do we say about differing interpretations? Number one, the scriptures reveal that there will be deliberate perversion of the scriptures in the forms of false teaching and attacks on the scriptures. So the fact that people disagree, especially when somebody denies something critical about God's character or the gospel, this actually is a fulfillment of every passage where the Bible warns us about guarding the truth and protecting sound doctrine, and contending for the faith. We already saw one in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is just the prototypical example. It happens in human form, not on the lips of a serpent, by the power of Satan. It shows up on the lips of men influenced by the power of Satan. Let me give you two examples, one from the old and one from the new. Look at Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah chapter 8. Here's what happens when... Men get a hold of the scriptures, and their audience has access to the scripture, kind of like Satan trying to deceive Eve, who has already heard from God. Now, how do false teachers influence and corrupt their audience when their audience has access to the written word of God? Here's how they do it. They do it like this. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 8. God is speaking, he's rebuking the leaders of Israel, and he's saying to them, How can you say, we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? So he's quoting the false teachers, the prophets and the priests of Israel who are misleading the nation. They are actually saying, hey everybody, Israel, listen up. We are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us. So now I'm picturing the priest, now it wouldn't have been a book with a spine, it would have been a scroll, but imagine them with their scroll, and the people know the content of that scroll, and so they are now bragging, saying, we have wisdom, and we have the law of God. But behold, God says, watch out. That's a command to look out, be on your guard. But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. Okay, that's fascinating. So now, maybe it's helpful to picture this. Uh, as I've often done, I picture this verse and I picture, you know, uh, maybe, a, maybe a late night TV preacher, you know, who's just waxing eloquent about to ask you for money. And there's maybe even a Bible verse on the screen. And that's the equivalent of saying, I'm wise, I have God's word. And so when... They have God's word, and the audience has God's word. At that point, you can't change the wording. It would be too obvious. You have to change the meaning. What do they do in 8b? The lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The human words 
speak louder than the divine words and the wrong meanings are ascribed to what God actually said so that the actual words God said are giving a meaning he never intended. That is a lie. That's a lie. Verse 9. The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what kind of wisdom do they have? God looks down from heaven. He sees mankind bickering about all of the divergent interpretations of the Bible. And he sees us saying, well, if it's really that clear, how can, how can God, I mean, why do we have different opinions? And God looks down at all these people saying, I'm wise, I got this interpretation. I'm wise, I got this interpretation. No, this is what it means. No, this is what it means. God says, look, your lying pen, your lying comments have perverted God's word, but now wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and they are caught. You are exposed, and it's true that even though you quoted that copy of your scriptures, and even though you put it on that screen, and even though you said something about it, you've rejected the word of God. Because if you have the form of the word of God, but you change its meaning, you don't have the word of God. Which is why that axiom is so true. The meaning of God's word is the word of God. Let me give you a New Testament example. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll start in verse 16. 2 Peter 3.16. And it says, As also in all his letters, his being Paul from the previous verse, from verse 15. Peter here is speaking about Paul's letters, Paul's epistles. So Paul says, in all of Paul's letters, he is speaking in them all of these things in which are some things hard to understand. Okay, now that's actually really, really helpful, by the way, because Peter has a very, very firm conviction about the clarity of God's word. Clarity means clear, not necessarily easy. Clarity means clear, not necessarily easy. Those are different things. It's profound, it's immense, it's grand, and the gospel is simple enough for the child to wade ankle deep in, and it's deep enough to drown the elephant. Those are both true. It's clear, but it's profound, so it's not always easy to understand. There are some things that are hard to understand. That doesn't mean it's not clear. It doesn't mean God is mumbling. It might mean that it's just hard to understand because it's profound. Which things the untaught and unstable distort? The root here is a twist, a perversion. They twist, they pervert, they distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So you picture like an aluminum can and take it by the top and the bottom and you twist that can so hard and so firmly that it tears the aluminum on the side. They twist and they pervert the scriptures. And like that can is absolutely useless for holding fluids anymore, they twist and pervert the scriptures and it is no longer the word of God because it has been perverted into something else. The scriptures are so clear. The scriptures are so clear. People will assault the scriptures. They will deny it. They will reject it. They will pervert it. They will change its meaning. 
And there's one answer. That's just one answer about this problem of having differing interpretations. We got time. Okay, we got time for one, one more. So there's three. I think we'll probably get through two this morning. The third one we'll have to wait for next, next week. Do the scriptures have an answer for differing opinions about the Bible? Yes. Number one, the scriptures teach us that there will be deliberate perversion. Number two, this is where numbers two and three start talking about differences among Christians. What about differences among Christians? This becomes a little bit more tricky because obviously people, the fact that the Bible has enemies, it's clear they're going to have, have a different interpretation. What about among Christians? Well, number two, the scriptures also say your ability to interpret the Bible is hindered by your carnality, by sin. Sin affects your ability to interpret. Isn't that interesting? This is what um, Josh was talking about in, in uh, Build uh, last, I believe it was a week ago or two weeks ago. Uh, he was teaching on this very thing. I mean, hermeneutics is a heart issue. How you read the Bible is reflective of the state of your heart. So we should not be surprised that sometimes when we come to the scriptures, we, in, our, in various states of our sanctification, have blind spots. Sometimes they're being exposed and we're putting stuff off. At other times, we might even be hanging on to something, and it's actually affecting our ability to read the scriptures properly. That's interesting. Why do I say that? Let's look quickly at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul's writing here to the Corinthian church, and he's telling them about why he's communicating in the way he's communicating. And he's saying that it's, it's not as though God gave me a message that needs a man-made delivery mechanism. Instead, Paul's saying, God gave me the message and the delivery system. He gave me the content of my message and the delivery. He gave me the wisdom and the word, both of them. He has been made rich in Christ, chapter 1, verse 5 says, for both wisdom and word. He has everything he needs for content and speech in Christ. And the Corinthians are saying, no, 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 Paul, you need some, you need some Greco-Roman rhetoric. That'll really make the gospel effective. And he says, nope. What does that do? Paul says the ability of man might make it more attractive to the worldly people, but not to his children. Chapter 2, verse 14. Let's dive right in. Verse 14. A natural man does not accept, and this word would be receive or welcome. The natural man does not put his arms around and embrace the things of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now, this is a very, very important verse. And you might say, but John, I thought you were giving us a reason why there's differences among interpretation of Christians. This is talking about the natural man, somebody who does not have the Spirit of God, somebody who's still in the flesh. And that's true. But let's look at, first of all, at what he says about the natural man. And he's going to make an application to the Corinthian believers here. So this is why this is so important. Look at verse 14 now. The natural man doesn't welcome the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. Notice that he's not saying that uh, the natural man can't understand the, the message of God's word. 
He does make a statement about his understanding in, in, in 14b, but that's talking about spiritual discernment and appraisal of the value of God's word. When it comes to the meaning of God's word, natural men all, the, all over the place get the text right. I've read unbelieving critics critique fundamentalists for being inconsistent on how they handle scripture. I've read unbelievers defend that the Bible teaches that Jesus is actually divine even though they don't believe an ounce of it. So unbelievers can get the message right, but they have no ability to receive it and welcome it as priceless treasure from God. So the natural man does not accept them as the spiritual, as the things of God. They're foolishness to him. He reads the Bible, and when he reads it properly, and he might even be a scholar in Hebrew, he might even be a scholar in Greek, and he reads it, and he comes to a proper conclusion about objective meaning, he says, <clears throat> foolish. No thanks. That's ridiculous. And then he says in verse 14b, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Here he's talking about the spiritual wealth and the richness of what's being revealed, and he discerns what the meaning is and says, valueless, I reject it. He does not understand he's rejecting gold. Natural man has no ability to receive the word of God properly. Now, why is he saying that to the Corinthians? Because he's concerned about the Corinthians. He loves the Corinthians. He wants them to benefit from his apostolic ministry. He wants them to benefit from his preaching and from his writing and from this epistle that, he's at, that they, they would actually be reading. And imagine being the Corinthian church on that first Lord's Day when the leader in the church would have stood up and read 1 Corinthians to the entire assembly. And imagine them reading this about the natural man and then watch where it goes in the next several verses. Verse 15. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. In other words, the spiritual man is above scrutiny because he knows, verse 16, the mind of God. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Corinthians are thinking, that's right, that's right. Verse 1, chapter 3. And I, brethren, I cannot speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. As to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. Notice, Paul says, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual men. Verse 15, they've probably thought, that's right, he's talking to us, we're spiritual. He says, but I couldn't speak to you as spiritual men. Ooh, what, Paul? What are you saying here? I had to speak almost as men of flesh. But he's not saying they're unbelievers. He said, how about as infants of Christ? I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. And literally in the original, if you're reading in the NAS, I don't know what most of you are reading, but I'm reading out of the NAS. That's what you just heard me read just now. And it says, for you were not yet able to receive it. And the to receive it is italicized because that's an, that's an addition. And so the original literally just says, for you are not yet able. Able to what? Well, maybe we need to keep reading. And the next phrase says, Indeed, you are even now not yet able. <laughs> able to do what? 
Remember the last time he used Abel? Chapter 2, verse 14. A natural man does not accept the things of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He is literally not able to understand. And Paul picks that up in chapter 3, verse 2, and he says, Corinthians, I'm grieved for you because you're sitting here squabbling over who's the better orator, Paul, Peter, or even Christ, or Apollos. Take your pick. And you're playing favorites over who's got the better ear candy because you like this guy because he wordsmiths, or you like this guy because he's punching and gets in your face, or you like this guy, and on and on and on. It's carnal. We're all preaching the same Christ and the same message. You are so carnal because you're listening to preaching to be entertained and to scratch some selfish itch. It's prohibiting you from interpreting the word rightly and being able to receive it as it's being given because you are still fleshly. That's the point. Paul's explaining that their fleshliness is prohibiting their ability to receive the word of God the way that it ought to be received. It's hindering their ability to interpret the scriptures and welcome it and receive it. I mean, this is true. What's true categorically for the unbeliever, he rejects the light because his deeds are darkness. He's not about to come light. It's a, it's a roach effect. When you flip on the light and the roach is in the closet, it runs because the light got turned on. And when I am in the darkness doing deeds of the darkness, the light of the gospel is so brilliant, I am going to run every time. Categorically, that's true of the unbeliever. To degrees, that's true of us as believers, is it not? Where we've got some little area of sin that we're hiding and we're protecting. We, we cover up and we protect and we, we read the Bible because we're good Christians and we, we do it every day, but that, that's really bright. And there's a spot right here that I do not want to get exposed. Nah. Let's keep reading. Oh, that's a good passage. I like this one. That was much better. I'm a little more comfortable here. No, I know none of you do that, but I've read about people who do. And uh, you've probably read about people who do. But Paul's answer is, listen, what's categorically true of the unbeliever is, is true in degrees of the believer. And our state of sanctification, our holiness, our willingness to do the will of God affects our interpretation. It affects our hermeneutics. And so that's answer number two is even among true believers, there's going to be differences in interpretation because of sanctification. We'll look at the third answer next week as well as the third attack. So let me just go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word and we're thankful for its clarity. And I, I do pray, as I mentioned earlier, I do pray that these studies in your word would increase our confidence in your ability to speak. Thank you, Lord, for speaking so clearly and Lord, we know that you have spoken with all objective clarity. Your word lacks no clarity. Wherever we experience any lack of clarity, Lord, it's, it's due to us. And so we come to you asking for grace, asking for help. Uh, equip us so that we would grow in our confidence in your ability to speak and our ability to understand what you mean. In your name we pray.